really honing in on the biggest problems to solve, getting people 100% aligned around that. And then you don't have to do it all as the product manager, and you shouldn't. You're you're probably not going to do a very good job if you try to. (laughs) This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Schrocki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curvey.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y.com. Hi, welcome to another episode of SAS Scaled. I'm pleased to have Joe Kenneth with us and his VP of product at Revenue Well. Welcome, Joe. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? I'm coming up here on close to 20 years in the technology industry, uh, always working for software companies and spend actually most of my career in product management, which product management has grown a lot in the last five to 10 years. Uh, it's, it's a little bit rare to find people that have been doing it for as, as long as I have, I think, at this point. <laughs> but I actually started out in finance at Microsoft in a rotation program, landed in a strategy group, and I was focused on what, what we were doing in the cloud. This was early 2000s. People didn't really understand what that meant yet, like what was the cloud. There was no iPhone. Computing was still largely owned and on-premise. And so I don't even know if I fully understood it at the time uh, or what was going to happen, but it was pretty eye-opening. And to work on a, you know, at a company of that size on the forefront of the cloud and things like social media back then, I realized after a couple of years that I wanted to get closer to product and how the products were actually built and closer to the development. So that's when I really moved into product management at Symantec, the security software company. Uh, worked on the Norton line of products in a variety of roles uh, over six or seven years. You know, one of the things that was interesting there was that uh, I joined when Waterfall was really still the primary way companies were operating. And we were still selling software through retail. You know, products were only shipping once a year. So while I was there, a lot changed or was changing. And it was interesting to kind of like live that transformation there at such a big company um, and see the before and after. After a while there, I went to cars.com, which is a really big uh, consumer website, kind of a, a two-sided platform, right? Helping connect dealers with car buyers. That's really where I, I feel like I honed my skills around agile and delivery, A-B testing. I moved into management and was more focused on organizational type of stuff. And part of the reason I went there, it was uh, pretty interesting. If, if you know who Marty Kagan is, I don't know Marty Kagan, but I've read like everything he's written. So I would love to know him. I feel like I do. Uh, but he had consulted with cars.com and helped transform them to uh, agile and the way they designed and built product. Um, so I was lucky enough to learn that system for a few years and really hone skills around discovery and delivery. After that experience, that's when I ended up at Revenue Well, where I currently am, have been for the last five years. And I started there when we were about 35 people. Uh, I was talking to the founders, kind of consulting them on you know, what product was and who you would want running product and stuff like that. And after a lot of conversation, they were just like, we want you to do it. So it was an opportunity to come into a company that was pretty, you know, pretty young and establish the product discipline and build the product organization. So 
that's kind of the the background on my career and you know just generally speaking i've i've been in product a long time so i have a lot of passion for the craft of product and a lot of things you have to think about related to product are just what you have to think about in building a technology or building a business so i, I really like that stuff and i really like thinking about how to manage an org at scale and what kind of structure and processes are important to get everybody working together so this is why I like being on podcasts like this to talk about, you know, some of that philosophy. <laughs> Can you also explain a little bit just to provide the context for the rest of the discussion as well? It might help. What does Revenue Well does and what kind of problems you are solving in that company? Yeah. So Revenue Well is a, uh, it would be called a patient engagement system. We're in the medical space. All of our customers currently are in dental, in the dental space. The basic problem we're solving is that most medical practices, they need to run a business, right? But they're there to treat patients, but they're not always experts on running a business or they just don't want to because they want to focus on treating patients. One of their biggest problems, given that, is that they need to run a business just like any other business, right? They need to be able to perform like a business is going to perform and meet customer expectations and deal with you know, competition that increases in the marketplace because there's more corporate medical practices coming, you know, coming into the market. So they need to do the same things as other business, you know, acquiring customers, retaining them, selling them on services, stuff like that, right? Providing a modern patient experience online. The challenge, again, is they're a small business, right? A lot of bigger companies that do all that stuff, you know, they build a website, they have a CRM, they have an IT staff, they have functional areas that manage all this, these different technology solutions. Since these are small businesses, they don't, you know, the people operating and working in these offices they're not experts on marketing. Typically, I should say typically, they're typically not experts on marketing and operations and technology. And so for them to cobble all those solutions together is like nearly impossible, right? And then when you have the backdrop in medical, you have things like their clinical applications and electronic health records, getting those to work with all these types of systems. It's, it's, it's pretty much not possible to get that up and running for most small businesses. And then the second thing is that even if they do make it operational, Actually having the staff being able to, you know, operate those solutions, be trained on them. There's a lot of turnover sometimes with like front desk staff and so on in medical practices. So it's just typically, you know, the, the solutions that have been out there historically are too, you know, complex or overboard for what they need to do. So what we've done is that we're an all-in-one platform that's really tailored to like what they need to do specifically as dental offices. And we integrate with their electronic health records and clinical applications and patient data. So we do like a lot of stuff. And that's one of the biggest challenges I'd say in our, our business is that, you know, our customers are looking for us to be a website and, you know, their digital marketing hub and their campaign hub to market to their existing patients and get them to accept treatment, their communications hub. Like we built our own phone system. We have, you know, our phone system does phone calls, it's in-office phone calls, it's web phone calls, it's, uh, you know, we have a mobile app, we have text messaging, we have the ability to do visits over video and stuff like that. And then we also do electronic forms, a lot of the patient-facing online stuff, so online scheduling, online forms, and so on. So we've brought that all together in one, you know, one platform, one solution that works together really well. And, you know, like I said, we've been successful because it's an all-in-one and because we're very turnkey. So we focus on you know, the campaigns are built around what are the types of campaigns that a dental office would send and what kind of content would you want to send to your patients. And so we've tailored a lot of the content and the, the templates in the system to be very specific to dental. And that's really like part of our playbook for no matter where we go in medical going forward. So that's the background on what we're doing and the, the problems that we're solving. Uh, and as far as our company, we're over, you know, we have over 10,000 customers all over the U.S. And, you know, like I said before, I joined, we we're about 35 people and we're at about 300 right now. 
I have a very general question, just because you mentioned a point that I think it's kind of, you know, resonate with many folks out there. You mentioned about all-in-one solution, right? So you have this solution that, you know, can provide rich functionalities across the board. And the benefit of it, of course, people coming and they don't need to, you know, choose and work multiple tools and then, you know, they are not integrated with each other. And we all know the problems that you might have. And integration is sometimes way more difficult than actual unification of building a unified environment. So right. on the other side, if you look at all of these all-in-one solutions, at one point as they grow, they may get to the point that they need to decide if they want to become a platform or not, right? So at that point, then, you know, you may become a platform, then other apps can reside on it. And then other parties can come in and add their own apps on this platform. And then you don't have to really create the whole solution. Even if I use iPhone as, as a metaphor, you know, the first year iPhone came, it was a solution, an all-in-one solution, and then they introduced the app market and it became a platform. It could stay as a solution and Apple says, I'm going to develop any app on it that I want. I'm not opening it up to everybody else to really write any app on it. But, you know, they made a decision that I wanted to introduce a platform versus I wanted to really make it a total solution all in one. How do you feel about that part? I, I mentioned it's a challenge, right? Because if you're trying to do all this stuff across that I mentioned, right, it's hard to be the best at all of those things, right? It's hard to be the best at, you know, campaigns and forms and so on and so forth. And and one way to move more quickly is by by integrating with other solutions or becoming a place that people can come and develop on 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 your platform. I've thought about this a lot for like, is that the right approach for us or not within our market? I think, you know, the first thing to look at is obviously what else is happening on the market? What's the size of the market and so on? Like, are you going to get enough, you know, if, if you want to have this open platform, like Apple could do it because it was like, okay, the market of independent software vendors out there that want to build applications for this platform is going to be enormous, right? But if you're in something that's more niche or something where the connection between those applications is going to be super important, then I think you have to go with more of a hybrid model at a minimum, right? Building everything yourself is going to be next to impossible, right? So, you know, my advice, you know, unless you're at massive consumer scale, I mean, you know, there's probably more, I, I'm not going to pretend to be the expert on all of this across all businesses. But I think the first thing to examine is just like, hey, what does that market look like? Will you have enough of an ecosystem of developers that could plug into this platform? And then also, how much control do you need over that experience in connecting those applications? Because if you need a lot of control, that's where I think the hybrid model probably works really well, where you're very you know, selective about, hey, here's the things that are corridor platform that we're going to build and be the best at, right? And then here's the things that we're very happy to plug in, and we'll either do it through having an ecosystem of vendors that plug in there, or we're going to find very specific, maybe one partner that provides that, so that we can make sure that we have the you know, the data, the information, the tools that will really connect on the platform and continue to make it, you know, kind of a seamless experience. So for us, that's really important is that they have to feel like our customers have to feel like this stuff is connected and that we've simplified their workflow. It's hard to simplify the workflow if you're not 
somehow plugged in with those vendors that you plug into the platform. So, you know, if that isn't important to your product, then I don't think that part matters as much and you might want to be more of a marketplace, you know? Those are some of my initial thoughts when you bring it up. And it's, it's a great question because we, it, it's often as we're looking at new capabilities, that's, you know, the build versus buy versus rent for, you know, those are the questions we're asking because we know we need a lot of stuff on our platform to deliver on the promise that we've set out to, to deliver on. You're right. I mean, the characteristics of the software that you are in and the kind of users that you have also, that's a big factor in deciding about this particular, you know, question. So in any product, doesn't matter which product we are talking about, any software company, any product, any SaaS company has this challenge to always keep the product, the vision, the business, you know, people working in the all aligned, you know, so everybody's on the same page, you are moving to the same direction. So you get the maximum power out of an, 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 an impact, I would say, out of the whole team and the effort and time and budget that you have. How do you see that, you know, in the, in the way you have done it, what is the most effective way to make sure that alignment is there? This is something I've uh, spent a lot of time thinking about, and I'd say there's been some trial and error, both in what I've experienced at other companies and then, you know, what I've done myself in our journey at, here at RevenueWell. The first thing that I noticed personally before getting to kind of like the, the solution, what I think a, a good solution is, is some of the gaps that I've seen historically. So I've seen, you know, I, and I've, like I said, I've experienced it myself where, you know, companies aren't firing at all cylinders. It's like, hey, maybe they've got a great vision. But like how they're actually accomplished it, nobody understands in the company. Or, hey, we know what we're supposed to be doing, but we're not really sure where this is leading to. And I feel like I've seen that gap a lot of places. You know, I interview a lot of people um, and, and try to understand that, you know, how they approach it in their organization to kind of understand where they're coming from. And I see that as a gap very often, right? So so one of the things that uh, was important to me to help, to help us establish was you know, to have a vision, to have a product vision, um, to have a strategy of how we're getting, going to get there, right? Even if it's not right, you know, just having, you know, having a stake in the ground of like, okay, here's what we think we need to go do to accomplish this. And then to somehow operationalize this, you know, within all of the teams, because um, that's another thing I know has been missing for a lot of folks in product over the years is, okay, we know we're supposed to work on this product, but like, why? Why are we going to win in the market? You know, like, why does this matter? And it's like, we can, we can keep iterating on this till the cows come home, but like, why is it going to matter? Um, and so the, the model that we, we created at, at Revenue Well, it's, I mean, the, the term mission I know has been used different places and they're back in like 2012, like the whole spot, Spotify published all of their, how they're organized and their squads and their guilds and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think we draw some of, you know, some of the way that we operate from that. Um, but to me, uh, you know, a good way to kind of connect all this stuff is we have our product vision. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking through that of like, hey, here's our product vision. Here's why, you know, here's what we think we need to go build to win in the market based on what we're trying to accomplish with our customer base. And from there, we we're just very deliberate about like, okay, well, here's the strategy. Here's kind of the building blocks. And a strategy doesn't need to be, you know, every decision you're going to make over time. I think of it literally as building blocks. Like, five, six, seven, maybe 10 if you're crazy, you know, like just kind of building blocks or what are the pieces that need to fall in place that people can remember to get us there? Probably like five to six is better. But then what we have our teams operate on, we give our teams a mission, right? Uh, every, every team gets a mission. So the idea behind a mission is that it's meant to be essentially the operating instructions for the team. Like, here's what we want you to go accomplish, right? And it could be super specific, like, 
go build this exact thing with this technology and just go do it as fast as possible, right? We try to not have missions be that. That's very directive. It's like, who are we to say? How do we even know if we're right, right? We kind of want our teams being the experts on the problem space and the customer space and then developing solutions off of that. You know, they could be really vague, like grow, grow revenue too, but that's, that's almost like an abdication of responsibility. Like, hey, we have no idea how to grow revenue. Teams, can you figure it out for us, you know? So I think the sweet spot is finding missions for teams that are, you know, either built around business metrics are important to us, like adoption or engagement. So, hey, grow adoption or engagement of a product. But I think even sweeter is if you can build it and can actually measure customer outcomes. So, like, for instance, for our product, we're connected into their what's called their practice management system. We can actually see how their business is performing and see that the stuff that we're doing is leading to better treatment plan acceptance or increased patient, you know, retention and stuff like that, right? And so we try to build a lot of our missions around those type of object- objectives. And when you do that, and you, you, it's like, okay, our missions have come from the strategy. They're kind of, the missions are building blocks to the strategy, which is building blocks to the product vision. People can see that. Like we have a pretty direct line from this team, what they're working on and how that connects up to the product vision. That's in a nutshell, kind of the system. And so how we operationalize it, at least between kind of execs and the, and the teams, is that the executive team or our product council is really focused on, hey, what are the most important missions? It gives us a lot of flexibility, right? Because another problem that I've seen historically with some um, sometimes with companies is, hey, we have this product, so just keep working on it, right? Like, we, we, you know, we built this product, so this is the product team for this product, and so they're just going to keep iterating on it until you tell them to stop, right? Sometimes that's the right decision, but sometimes you're actually wasting time, right? Like you're, you've got this mature product that, okay, it doesn't really need to get that much incrementally better where this, you've got that many teams on this. We could actually be better served taking them off this product or, and working in another area. Or the other, the other thing that we've seen is that when you, when you isolate a team to a product, they're just going to think about how to incrementally improve that product. Some, you know, if, if you, if you set the context that way, if we set the context for the teams around these outcomes and these missions, they may create a product we didn't think of, right? Like they may create a product that, that didn't exist or an extension to a product that you might not have ever thought to do that because you were trying to solve how to improve this product versus how to solve this outcome. So that's what we focus on very heavily on the kind of the product council is, hey, what are the right missions? And then the teams focus on, you know, creating the plan, you know, essentially the roadmap and the goals and milestones uh, that they think they need to achieve to achieve, you know, they need to, you know, do uh, to achieve whatever was set out in that mission. And, you know, at that point, it becomes kind of a two-way street. Like, they should be able to inform the mission and how it needs to evolve. And then we should be giving feedback on on the progress that's being made there. Um, and so I think when, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd be lying if I said, hey, it's a it's a well-oiled machine and this is so easy to do. You know, it's like you just need, you just need to download a slide and, like, it'll tell you how to do all this. There's a lot of work that takes in cultivating the system, but when you do it and you put this stuff in place, I think it's what helps people make that connection and build better products. And in some cases, you may receive feedback from different groups, of course, customers, existing customers, but also sometimes from market, right? So sometimes from sales group who may feel like when I you know, talk to these prospects, sometimes they're asking about things that we don't do and they are coming to you and say, can you you know, support some of these things in the product. So next time we can have a better chance to close these deals and win these deals. So how would you keep the balance or how would you think product management in general should keep the balance and maybe in different stages of the company, there are different 
type of balances, I don't know, but how do you feel about keeping yeah. the balance between what comes from sales, what comes from market, and what comes from existing customers? Yeah, no, great question. So, man, my, my mind goes a few different places with it because like you mentioned, right? Like there, it could be the scale of the company and the size, right? Because when you're earlier on, there's a little bit of survival ship, right? Where you may put a lot more weight on one customer request when you have five customers, right? <laughs> or 10 customers, or if you, you know, if that was part of your strategy of doing kind of like a concierge MVP, well, that that's a pretty easy one, right? Like you're probably going to develop, you know, a lot of things to say, but even in that case, right? One of the, the consistent threads I see is people, you know, oversimplifying what it means to go get customer feedback, right? And it's like, okay, uh, it, you know, I, want, well, I guess I'll use it. People always quote like the Steve Jobs or the Henry Ford thing of like, I asked my, you know, customer, what they wanted, they would have, you know, told me a better horse and so on. But my takeaway from all that has never been don't talk to customers. It's been, okay, we need to hear what customers are saying. And we need to like really establish themes around the problems that they're facing, right? So if they say, I want this feature, you know, really coaching the sales team or whoever the customer facing team is on getting the why behind that, right? And that's the thing that I, I, I've seen this the most in, in feedback on features and so on. It's like, Hey, great. They want that. I can think of a billion reasons why they'd want it, but <laughs> what's the specific one? Because most likely the best solution is not going to come from solving that one problem. It's going to be agglomerate, you know, putting together all this feedback that we've gotten from a bunch of customers, but if you're a big enough company, right? And finding the thematic problems to solve. Because I, I can think of one example that we faced, right? Is that I mentioned campaigns is a big part of our platform. And we've had hundreds of, you know, thousands probably of requests for different campaigns or ways to be able to modify them over the years, right? And so if we would have tried to solve every single one of those based on, hey, customer XYZ that is really important wants this feature, we could have solved some of those, you know, we could have solved some of them, but we'd be working on this forever, right? Like we, and we'd probably end up with a Frankenstein of a product that is just like all over the place with all types of things that, you know, that every customer ever requested in the interface. And it's going to be a really confusing experience. So what we focus on, I think is really important is this, find those themes because what we did, uh, really the theme, it, it was only a couple of themes. One of the biggest themes was just flexibility. Like if we just built a plat, if we built our campaign solution, in a more, just from an architectural foundational perspective, more flexible from the beginning, then we would have been able to handle all these requests, right? And so, you know, it, it helped us go back and say, okay, how would we retool this so that we can solve like 5,000s of these requests rather than one in a project? And so that's where, that's part of where my mind gravitates towards when you ask that question. But you also ask kind of about market, right? About like looking at feedback that's coming from existing customers versus, you know, uh, versus, you know, prospects and so on. And, you know, that that's a tough one. Like, I think it depends on what is the focus of the company right now? I mean, if your retention rates are through the roof and you have no problems, then I'm not saying ignore your existing customers, but, you know, you might be more focused on growth and you, you look more at what maybe attacking a part of the market that you haven't been as successful at yet, right? You know, this is where that strategy piece comes in and those building blocks, because in that strategy piece, you should be addressing what customers are we going after? You know, how are we prioritizing? We want to get everybody, right? That's another common problem I, I think I've seen is like, we want to do everything and be successful with everybody and be the best company for everyone through all time, right? And hey, we can have that be our long-term goal, <laughs> but I think we need to prioritize that in some way that it says, look, yes, we're going to try to be good for everyone, both new and existing, but who's number one right now? And like, let's focus and make sure we've 
you know, got solid plans for the, those prospects or for our existing customers. And it really speaks to just like, hey, what is the problem that the business that we want to solve in the business? Is it retention or is it growth? I should say acquisition because um, growth could come from your existing customers as well. But that's really your guide, I think. Use those strategies, the building blocks of strategy as your guide. You know, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing, but we do need clear priorities because otherwise you're going to have people marching off in 55 directions. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of points that you mentioned, and rightfully and correctly, those indicate that essentially in a product management role, you have to keep the balance, right? So you have to all the time keep the balance from many different aspects. And also you have to be very good optimizer. So it's all about optimizing, you know, resources, time that you have. Is your problem sales, that new sales is not happening at the rate you would expect to make you financially thriving business or the problem is with the churn of existing customers so or is it about really competitors are getting you know better and better and i have to just listen more to the competitive market or what is the future of the market based on the new technologies coming that may impact me one way or the other. So there are many different aspects. And as you said, just keeping the balance and listening and optimizing because any company doesn't matter large or small has limited resources. So it's all about optimi optimization. And honestly, you know, that's really the, the best personalities that I've seen and experienced in product management, those are very kind of, you know, level headed kind of balancers in the, in the company. They keep the balance. They essentially sometimes product management is, is doesn't have even enough authority to, it's not like everybody reports to them, but everybody expects from them the product that is the engine at any software company. But, you know, they, they need to just work with all of these parties and communicate and coordinate and get the input and, and keep the balance. So definitely that's a, that's the way to look at it as the art of product management. Yeah. And you made me think of a couple of things, you know, first off, I was like, wow, this job is daunting. Um, <laughs> there's a lot to do. Well, I think one of my, one of my pieces of advice for PMs or prospective PMs or anybody that's trying to know more about product management is don't put that all on yourself. Cause like all those things that you mentioned and you've, you've experienced as a founder and a, you know, an operator and so on, right. Is it's going to be hard for any one person to be able to answer all of those questions themselves. <laughs> and there's a good chance no one person has the answers or will be correct, right? So what I focus on a lot and I think what's most successful is how do we create the environment for the discussion, right? Like, you know, I, I try to focus and have my PMs focus a lot on like, you know, within their teams when we're trying to balance all of those things, like how do we create the proper environment where we can get enough smart people that know about this with slightly different perspectives, depending on where they come from at the company to discuss this and like provide their opinions. And, you know, and I think, you know, usually like people are always like, well, who makes the decision? You know, who makes the final decision? And I'm like, we probably need to decide that sometimes, you know, but like what I've found is that if you're really good at creating those conditions for the discussion, putting the right inputs and perspective into the discussion, um, and then letting the discussion flourish and managing that discussion really well, that 90% of the time, 85% of the time, nobody needs to make it. Like everybody comes to a collective decision. So I think it would be dangerous to try to operate everything based on consensus, you know, full consensus. But I think usually when you create the right environment for that discussion and have the right information, most people are going to, you know, 
come pretty close to the same conclusions if you've done a good job of, hey, let's focus on the problem and you know being clear about the problem that we're trying to solve. Because while there can be multiple solutions, what I've seen a lot of people debating and not getting on the same page about is just they're discussing solutions, right? Like they're debating solutions, but they're all solving different problems, like because nobody actually established that. So again, kind of coming back to like creating that right environment, it's like really honing in on the biggest problems to solve, getting people 100% aligned around that. And then you don't have to do it all as the product manager and you shouldn't. You're, you're probably not going to do a very good job if you try to. <laughs> and the other point that you mentioned, like interacting with customers, right? So customers, and, and you mentioned, you know, some quotes from, you know, Henry Ford or some other people that we hear that sometimes, you know, customers may not be the best source of information when it comes to designing a solution. But I think everybody would agree that even if they are not the best source to tell you what the solution is, at least they are the best source to let us know what the problems are. So it's always a reliable source to go and learn about the problem, even though not always they can offer the best solution, right? So would you agree with that kind of sentiment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so if somebody says, hey, what's one thing I can do to have a better customer conversation or like, Hey, I don't know what to do, you know, in this customer conversation, what should I talk about? What should I ask? How should I process the information? Uh, now it kind of depends on your product and who your customer is. But like, for instance, we sell into medical offices. None of us are doctors. None of us are working day to day in a medical practice, working with patients. So my advice is just, Hey, pick something you need to learn more about how it operates in the practice and just ask about that. You know, take an approach where not just ask, oh, what about this, right? But I think what I tell everybody to, to the mindset that they found to have is go into it as if you're going to need to go explain this and teach it to somebody else. So if you've heard of the concept of like learn, teach, learn, I think it's a really powerful one, right? It's like, let me learn from my customers. Let me teach it to some other folks and I'm going to learn the process and know that better. You know, for instance, I mentioned medical practice. If you're just like, hey, how do you schedule an appointment, Right. We're going to find things. If we just have them walk us through, literally from beginning to end, when a, customer, you know, when a patient calls to when they schedule an appointment and then what all the processes are, you are going to find things along the way every time because you're going to, you, know, you have enough of those conversations, you're going to learn more about like, the nuances of those processes and how different people approach this problem. And then I think one of the biggest things is, is finding the emotion, right? Like there's going to be points in that conversation where they're going to say, something off, you know, the flippant, like, you know, like, oh, I hate that. Or, you know, just something that's, you know, shows frustration or elation about something. And exploring those emotions is incredibly powerful. And that's, that's something I've seen people gloss over sometimes in these customer conversations, right? It's like, they, they, they had their script, they had their questions they wanted to ask, and they just kept going through them. And along the way, they missed a huge insight, right? It's like, oh, they hate that process. Why? You know, just dig into that, like probe, probe, probe. So I typically go into the, you know, and, and coach everyone to go in these conversations with, you know, trying to understand a high level process, be able to explain it else, you know, elsewhere afterwards, and then just probe on what you, you know, what you hear during that conversation. The other thing that comes to mind when you ask this question about customer conversations is like, I think I've, I've worked some places where I felt like people were a little arrested in, in terms of they felt like they couldn't make any decisions or make progress without explicit customer feedback on stuff. I think some of it is a little bit of CYA that might happen at bigger companies. It's like, you know, if I didn't do the explicit study, you know, uh, they'll be like, why didn't you do the study? That's why this failed, right? But I think anybody that's been at this long enough is you can study all day and still be wrong, right? So 
you know, what I, what I focus on in, in, in coaching when it comes to customer conversations and deciding when to have them, I think that's another important like element here, or, like through, uh, thread, I guess, would be how you decide when to have, because you can't talk about everything. You can't have every decision informed by them. So I tell everybody to look at it through this, this, the aspect, the, the lens of the problem and the solution. Like how confident are we that this is a big problem and what is the risk if we're wrong, right? And same with the solution. So let's say we feel good about the problem. We've developed a solution. We've developed an interface. Like, how confident are we this is the right, you know, interface? And what is the risk if we're wrong? Because in cases where risk is low, like, oh, well, if we're wrong, we just spend two days and we, we, we tweak a couple of things. Okay, well, that's pretty low risk. Like, just build it. Why go have a customer conversation, right? But in cases where it's like, well, we're, we're partially confident and there's high risk. If we're wrong, we spent three months building something, <laughs> you know, that is worthless for customers. It's going to take, it's kind of a trap door, right? There's no way to come back from that. Well, in those cases, we might want to do some more validation up front. So that's another way I coach the team in terms of deciding like, hey, what areas to probe on and the, the topics to cover uh, beyond just like, how do they do something operational? You know, um, it's, it's using that lens to really focus on the highest, you know, problems and solution and not feel like we have to study everything before we can develop anything or deploy anything to customers. Because in that case, you're going to move so slow that there's no way you'll win. <laughs> or I should say, I shouldn't say no way, low probability. <laughs> That's another element of balance. A lot of how I think about a lot of stuff in product is related to balance and not being on too far on either side of the spectrum with most things. A point or one topic that relates to many of these questions, to all of them, that we have discussed so far is the product vision, right? So you set the product vision and then it connects a lot of dots. It glues a lot of things together. It answers some of the questions when you talk to customers, when you are analyzing the problems, the solutions, when you are orchestrating the team, you know, a lot of that goes back to how do you define the product vision? Now, if you narrow it down, and you have a very specific or more specific product vision definition, it seems to be more pragmatic or practical or at least more definite, more, more clear. People can relate to it more, but then it is kind of limiting maybe in long run. And if you widening the definition of your product vision and you have a very wide definition, it definitely, you know, allows you to follow it over time without going there and adding another kind of, you know, narrow it down or added another button, even changing it that right. you don't want to do it because it's product vision and it's supposed to be very long-term kind of vision. But then you, you define it in a very general way and then it's not that useful anymore because everything can relate to it. Everyone can interpret it one right. or the other. Everything, you know, that everyone does can say, oh, it's part of that vision too. And then it's not that useful. How would you decide that your vision should be maybe, you know, inclusive, but not, you know, very wide kind of net? I feel like if I can answer this one absolutely right, then I, I should create a business around it because <laughs> I think this is the struggle, right? It's, it's, it's no, what is that right level, right? To have the vision. So yeah, I think some of the words like vision and mission for companies get tossed around where it's like, it really doesn't mean anything or it's just like, yeah, oh, we're going to be the number one in the market. Okay. That's not really a vision, right? Like that doesn't help me understand <laughs> how we're actually going to do this. Uh, still though, my, my recommendation is to always start 
like maybe this is the way my mind works, but this is what works for me is starting from the highest level possible, right? Like just starting from the core customer jobs that we're solving and just thinking through, you know, I think a, a customer journey is helpful with this and stuff like that is just finding all the points, you know, not, not putting too much pressure on the product vision to solve everything, but just being, you know, something that explains how do we, how are we going to solve these jobs? What do we think we need to be able to do to solve these jobs? And in a way that will differentiate us in the market, right? And just start there. And it's pretty basic, right? And you're probably not going to be fully right, you know, and everybody will know that. Um, but I think you can create, you know, kind of, I, I do think prototypes are really useful for this where it's, you know, you have to message it appropriately, but there's something about seeing something in an interface and on paper and you don't over-focus on details like, oh, is a button going to be here and stuff like that. But you just kind of convey these concepts of like, hey, here's the types of things that we think we need to build in the product over time. We're not hanging on anything. Like, don't count on all this stuff being there. But I think when you see the collection of these things, you know, basically kind of the response of like, hey, what are some high-level solutions to the jobs that we feel like we need to solve to win in the market? You can create a prototype that gives a sense of what that will look like someday, right? And and people will see those concepts. And again, you have to message it properly and almost train people on it to know that like, look, this is not a, a blueprint for exactly what we're going to build, but is directionally where we think we need to head right now. And we'll tell you if it changes, we're going to update it. I mean, we've we've updated our product vision multiple times. Has it changed substantially where the concepts are completely different? No. You know, it's it's maintained a lot of similarity between versions. We've just augmented over time as we've gotten sharper about the most important parts of it. Some stuff has come out. Some stuff has come into it. But I think if you create kind of that ongoing dialogue and focus on, yeah, almost building like... It ends up being specific enough when you put it into that prototype. And, you know, we don't have to overfocus on prototypes. It's not like, oh, does it have to be in Figma or something like that? No, I mean, it could literally be in a PowerPoint, you know? <laughs> it could literally be a bunch of bullet points if it needs to be. I just think that, you know, having the visuals and working with the design team on it, you know, it creates a little bit more specificity in people's minds. They can see, oh, I can see what that would look like, right? And if you got people nodding and saying, hey, I can see what that could look like, then I think it's going to resonate with them and actually have the impact that you want the vision to have, which is help people make micro decisions, right? Like help people understand where this company is headed. That if you just keep it as like, hey, we're going to be an all-in-one platform, for instance, that wouldn't be sufficient. Like, great, I get that we're going to be an all-in-one platform, but like how and in what ways are we not going to compete? In what ways are we going to really focus? And you wouldn't get all of that if you just kind of keep it at these high-level statements. But yeah, of course, if you got like way too specific and over-focused on the details, you might constrain people's thinking to where it's like, you know, oh, okay, like, we're going to just build that, you know, and like, my directions are to build that in three years, you know, <laughs> and that could be problematic. So I think, you know, none of these things are, a, a, you know, the silver bullet, right. But I think if you, if you kind of build that prototype, and then manage that conversation over the months and years that, that, that follow, you can get people pretty in tune with it, they'll get a sense of like, hey, what are the things that are actually, you don't even what you mostly care about is like, do they understand concepts and direction, right. And if they get that, they're probably going to make better micro decisions and you, your teams will make better decisions that fit into your platform vision or your whole product vision. And, you know, it's not like it replaces every conversation you need to have. It just gives people a starting point that is not zero, that, like it is at some places, right? Where it's like, hey, this could mean everything to everyone, right? And you just want to narrow that down a little bit. <laughs> I would like to also ask you, as my last question, if you have any book to introduce to the audience. Something that, you know, you have, you liked it and you thought that it has impacted what you have done. Yeah. If it's okay, can I give a couple? Sure. 
because what I tell every product person in my team to the joins to, to have read if they haven't done it already, and I encourage them to reread them. This is not going to be a new one. It's like the lean startup and by, by Eric Ries and um, inspired by Marty Kagan. I think lean startup does a great job of helping no matter what technology business you're in, you're probably operating in an environment of uncertainty and it helps you think it's a good framework for navigating that. Right. And then I think Marty Kagan's book inspired is great. Like pragmatically, how should these teams operate together? Like what's the best way to do discovery and delivery and work together within a combined product design and engineering team. So those are like, to me, must reads. Like if you haven't read that, it's hard to do products. Like, I mean, of course you could, right? Like I, I bet not every product person has read. I just encourage everyone to read those too. But I also like to give some that are like maybe a little bit more off the beaten path because I listen to a lot of podcasts and I've heard some of these a million times, you know, so like, so two that I would recommend that maybe not everybody has read. One is called Grow by a guy named Jim Stangle. I read it back in like maybe 2012 and he used to be the CMO at Procter & Gamble. It was a book that I read when I was trying to think about how to establish a product vision. Like what are the elements that I want there? And I don't even think that's why he wrote it. He wrote it more about like what makes companies grow and be profitable. But I found it really insightful for like thinking through how to establish a product vision for my product. And then another one was Crucial Conversations. So that, that one I feel like I haven't heard about in a long time, haven't heard people mentioning it. So I thought I would mention it. But I think one of the underestimated parts of a PM's job is your job as a leader. And like people say, yeah, I'm great at collaborating because I can work with people. I'm great at communicating because I can write, you know, present really well. Like I think one of the biggest parts of it that separate the best product managers from the, you know, good or okay ones is like how they handle conflict, right? Like just how do they hold people accountable? And crucial conversations is, you know, I think a common thing that I've seen and, and felt myself is like wanting to be liked, <laughs> right? Just being afraid to like hold people accountable or have tough conversations because like, well, this person's not going to like me or they're going to hate me after this. I've seen that with so many people that I've coached. And this book just helps, you know, I think helps you think through that in a way that you realize it's not an either or, you know, it's like, you can have a productive conversation with somebody about something very hard and still maintain a good relationship. And I think it gives good tools for that. So yeah, it's hard for me to mention one. I could have, if you, you helped, you know, held my feet to the fire, but like the, those are some of my recommendations. And then anything by Peter Drucker, because every book that I've read, you know, I feel like a lot of books are derived from things that Peter Drucker wrote 30, 40, 50 years ago <laughs> about management and organizations. Um, and there's a lot of recycling of his ideas and he doesn't get enough credit. So I want to give him a shout out too. <laughs> very true no thanks yeah i appreciate it again thank you very much for joining me today it's uh it has been a great discussion and regardless of how many times i do it i learn every single time when i speak with bright-minded people who are in charge of these kind of SaaS companies and growing the company on the product side revenue side business side uh, it's a lot of kind of, it's a puzzle, multi-dimensional puzzle, and that makes it fascinating because you are at any given time, you have all of these kind of levers and all of these moving parts and you are thinking hard and strategizing and making it successful. And, you know, success is not accidental for most part. Uh, failure is sometimes very accidental, but, <laughs> but when, when you're successful and making things work, uh, you know, you have done a great job, you know, growing the company and making customers happy and building a solid product that serves people. So fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. You know, if you ever want to go Joe Rogan format, we could do a three hour conversation and I wouldn't get bored. So I really appreciate the facilitation too. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Arman Ashragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, 
go to sascale.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.